Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century and transformational periods in history. I'm Joe Hawthorne, and today we're diving into the Boxer Rebellion. However, before I jump into the show, I wanted to share an update. I do this show for free, but during my days, I also edit and produce podcasts for other folks. I had to cut back on the frequency of Turn of the Century because I've been so busy at work. I'm getting ready to launch some exciting new projects, which I think you'll really enjoy. What this means for Turn of the Century, though, is that we're going to move to a monthly release schedule. I'll post more often when I can, but I just wanted to be honest and upfront about what to expect. Putting that aside, let's talk about the boxers. From 1899 to 1901, the Secret Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, nicknamed the Boxers, led a massive uprising in China. This rebellion allied with the Qing Dynasty to try and topple Western colonists and Christian missionaries. Over several dramatic months, the Boxers made it all the way to Beijing and laid siege to the foreign legation, a coalition army of Russian, Japanese, American, Austrian, British, French, and Italian troops fought their way to the capital and defeated the Boxers. Eddie, host of Sinobabble, joins the show to retell these events and the importance of the Boxer Rebellion. So let's lace up and get ready for history at the turn of the century.
Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Eddie, host of the Sinobabble podcast, who has a PhD in Chinese and history. Eddie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I'm really excited to talk about um, Chinese and history, Chinese history. But I'm excited to get into, first of all, the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxer Uprising. Um, this has a lot to do with some of the research that I've done into the Philippine-American War and right around the turn of the century, almost exactly the turn of the century. So the first question I want to get into um, is probably going to be the hardest. I like to start with the most impossible questions first. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> sure. Okay. So we're going to talk about the boxers right around the turn of the 20th century. But before we do that, China or the Chinese Empire is one of the longest uh, la lasting, longest civilizations in human history, right? Okay. Yep. <laughs> so my first... <laughs> <laughs> that we know of, um, you know, putting aside any ancient aliens or anything. But um, my first question is, as the boxers start to gain power, what's the whole context in China? What is um, the state of China right at the turn of the century? Hmm, right. Um, you're right. That is quite a broad question to answer. I guess the best way to describe it would be turmoil and decay, to put it briefly. Um, so for context, the, the imperial dynasty that you have at the turn of the century is the Qing dynasty. It's the last imperial dynasty of China. Um, and it had been in power since around 1644 and was actually a foreign foreign by um, Chinese standards dynasty. So they were the Manchus. They were from the uh, northeastern region of modern China. So current day Heilongjiang, Jilin and Liaoning provinces in northeast China. That's Manchuria. Um, and they kind of distinguished themselves ethnically um, in, in other ways, sort of socially in terms of the social hierarchy from the Han Chinese, who were the native Chinese um, demographic, the majority demographic at the time. Um, so the Manchus were sort of like the ruling class of China, and they had been the, um, they had been so for the past 300 or so years. Um, and their power had been maintained through like a banner system. So um, they had like eight imperial banners that were a really well organized, very strong military, which is how they had overcome the Han Dynasty previous, which was the Ming Dynasty. Um, but by the um, early, mid-19th century, the Qing imperial system, the Qing banner system, had been overwhelmed by the arrival and the imposition of the West in very broad, generalistic terms. Um, so you have a number of uh, sort of conflicts that lead to the weakening of the Qing imperial dynasty. So you have famously the Opium Wars, that take place between the 1840s and the early 1860s. And these are basically the Western imperial powers, mainly Britain, USA, France, um, trying to gain more concessions, to gain more favourable trading conditions in China. Um, and they do this sort of by starting a war, uh, essentially based around the trade of opium, saying that um, you know China's trade with the UK, for example, was imbalanced. 
And so they started flooding the Chinese market with imported opium. There was a huge addiction problem in the Chinese population. And so the Qing, in order to sort of stamp this out, tried to ban opium entirely. And in doing so, they, you know, things fermented, a war happened, the Qing dynasty lost, which ended up leading to the signing of the uh, Treaty of Nanjing, which is also known in China as the Unequal Treaties, which basically allowed foreigners to set up concession areas within China, uh, mainly along the coastal areas. So by the late 19th century, which is when the Boxer Rebellion takes place, you have not only quite a few foreigners living in China, but you have everything that Western foreigners bring with them, um, which is obviously sort of culture, uh, Western knowledge, um, and also the biggest problem that the Boxers had, which was Western religion, Christianity. And I mean, I think that's a, a fantastic summary of a giant <laughs> question. So first of all, thank you. But um, that really brings up the other contextual point that I'm thinking about when I, as kind of an outside observer, think about um, China at the turn of the century. And like you mentioned, opium wars, um, we're going to get into the boxers. I think of a lot of turmoil. Um, and I think of, you know, uh, a lot of destruction, a lot of um, uh, drug trade, essentially pulling wealth, extracting wealth out of um, one of the formerly richest societies and countries uh, in the world. So the other contextual question I want to just get at is how do we think about life for the average Chinese person, a median Chinese person around this time? Is there any way to do that? Or is China so vast at this moment that, you know, there's a lot of struggle in, let's say, coastal cities, but people deeper into the uh, mainland aren't experiencing? How do we describe life for a common person? Right. So um, obviously studies about the common person, as we know, in generally speaking uh, about history, they tend to be few and far between prior to the 20th century, at least. Um, but what we know about China at the time is that of a population of between, say, 400 and 500 million people, about 90 percent of them lived in the countryside. So most of them were were rural farming peasants. Um, who also engaged in some sideline activity, for example, producing silk um, or raising livestock, things like that. Um, but the majority of people were sort of um, what we would consider by today's terms to be poor peasants. Um, you did have some merchants, you had some capitalists in um, as sort of the eastern coastal cities, people who were able to profit from trade with Western countries uh, people who were able to engage in um, up-and-coming businesses, such as textiles, tobacco, um, or people who were able to exploit China's natural resources, especially in the Northeast, such as coal. Um, but the average Chinese person was was uh, more concerned with subsistence, I would say. So there's a lot of change happening right now, both on a macro level for um, China's leaders, um, for the old uh, imperial dynasty, as well as for average people, that even though a lot of people um, were uh, basically subsistence farmers or living um, more subsistence, lower income life, that they're still experiencing these changes um, with uh, the coming of the 20th century. So let's get to the question, who are the boxers and what 
general problems are they trying to address? Right. So um, the boxes are a hodgepodge of people, I would say. So they're kind of um, a mix between people who belong to other sort of sects or what we might call cults um, in modern parlance, but it depends on what your views on sort of spirituality are. Um, and as well as sort of disenchanted workers, laborers, um, and farmers, uh, people who had been uh, displaced from their homes by natural disasters such as floods or just who didn't have enough food, um, young women who were seeking to escape their very prescriptive and sort of stifling lifestyles, and also a large contingent of uh, anti-Christians. Um, and so the main things that the uh, the group were trying to do, I wouldn't say they were trying to in the first place when they sort of first all got together. I wouldn't say they had like a grand aim. Um, we mentioned before the podcast that they have um, lots of different names for themselves. So what one of them was the Iha uh, Chuan, which means uh, the righteous and harmonious fists. So they kind of had like this sort of spiritual practice uh, based around uh, kind of like martial arts and boxing that they believed made them impervious to um, injury, uh, impervious to bullets, uh, impossible to kill, essentially. Um, so that was kind of like their main focal spiritual center. Uh, but a problem that they wanted to tackle, especially, was these sort of privileges that they felt that uh, foreign Christian missionaries and local Chinese Christian converts were receiving as a result of their Christian status. So they saw Christianity as, first of all, this sort of weird foreign thing that was coming in and sort of undoing traditional Chinese values such as Confucianism, um, trying to undermine the Chinese way of life, um, and also just generally undermining the local um, sort of legal systems because obviously the missionaries would be educated and literate whereas the average Chinese peasant wasn't and so if there was sort of like a dispute between a Chinese Christian and a Chinese non-Christian they could call on the missionaries to sort of help them out in court and get better reparations and things like that so the Christians were a problem and the boxers who are based in sort of northern China and Shandong province mainly um, they were particularly concerned with uh, the profilation of Christianity. That makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I was thinking about, I know sometimes historians are loath to make modern comparisons, but you mentioned, you know, the, the kind of hodgepodge element. And I was just kind of thinking about, um, if you remember Occupy Wall Street or the Occupy <laughs> movements, um, there's a, a, you know, a sense with, modern movements like Occupy, there's some uniting thing against, let's say, the 99%, um, but that they're, um, they're not connected, like, they're not all the same political brand, political cohesion. Um, you know, do you think that there's, that's kind of a, a, a helpful comparison to think about people that have one or two driving, um, interests or driving i guess kind of inequities but on the whole it's such a large group that it's it's hard to um you know characterize them all as the boxers as opposed to people that all kind of 
have um have a shared grievance yeah i think that's a good way of thinking about it definitely um if you want an even more modern comparison you might you know want to think about the wall street bets group of people on reddit um you know united by a common cause as opposed to a very strong central ideology and they certainly didn't have any organized leadership either yeah okay that's a really i like that um as a kind of you know um the the march to uh peking is kind of like uh going for all the stonks um the game stonks <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so then take me through this um you know uh 1900s game stonk um you know attack um or uprising um when when people talk about the boxer rebellion what does that actually mean what events are we referring to um so it sort of all begins in early 1899 so um like i said under no particular leadership. I think it's just something that kind of broke out as many of these things were doing at the time in China. It's quite important to note that sort of localized revolts, especially against Christians, were not uncommon at all. You know, they, um, I think local incidences numbered in the thousands per year. Um, so I think what really did it for the boxers was that they killed, um, I don't know if he was relatively prominent, but they did kill a missionary uh, named Reverend Brooks. And um, it was this incident that prompted the Qing to get the um, the army involved because the foreign legations who were based in uh, Beijing, Tianjin, um, you know, obviously one of their own had been killed. And so they were alerted to the situation whereas if it had been a few sort of Chinese Christian converts they probably wouldn't have cared at all as they usually didn't um and so the Qing did something rather unusual (laughs) instead of acquiescing to the foreign legation's request to sort of help them out and sort of quash this rebellion the Qing actually decided to side with the boxers um and particularly the governor of um Shandong province, I believe his name was Governor Yu Xian, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and the Empress Dowager Cixi, who was sort of the de facto leader of China as the actual emperor at the time was just a child. Um, and so they sort of regrouped, changed their name to the Yi He Tuan, which is the Righteous and Harmonious Militia. Um, and they sort of changed and kind of formulated like a proper goal or ideology, if you will, which was to fight imperialism and foreign imposition um, on China and Chinese values, and also to restore the greatness of the Qing dynasty. And you may be about to get into this, um, but I I want to focus for a moment. You know, is the Qing dynasty, or was the Qing dynasty, doing this as like following the current and not wanting to get left behind? Um, how much did the imperial, I guess, stamp of approval affect the these course of events? Could they have stopped the boxers um, if they had, I guess, allied with Western uh, powers instead? Oh, they absolutely could have. Um, <laughs> you know, at this time, they could have called on the governor of Shandong province to, um, you know, take up the banners and mobilize them against these. I mean, you have to remember these are sort of like peasants robbers 
you know, these are just regular people with kind of like pitchforks, I guess. So it was really under the auspices of the Qing that they became organized and they were able to have greater freedom of movement to go from Shandong province um, sort of northwards up to um, Tianjin and Beijing. That's really interesting uh, because the way that I don't know about uh, the the median person, but the way that I've kind of imagined it in the past is the boxers as a kind of wave that um, I guess the uh, dynasty starts riding. But um, this uh, this makes a lot of sense that you know uh, the <laughs> the military force has military force. So the question I want to get at as we're continuing to have these events move on and um, the righteous and harmonious militia militia um starts to form and strengthen why did um the dowager empress um and the imperial structure decide to side with the boxers at this moment as opposed to you know a previous peasant uprising um i think the the main factors would have been things like the um the size of the movement. So it's relatively bigger as a concentration of people, as an identifiable group, like who the boxers were, where they were based. Um, they were also very close to the capital. The distance between Shandong and Beijing, where the capital is, uh, wasn't that far, relatively speaking. Um, and the dynasty really was sort of on its last legs. I mean, they'd been through a lot um, in the mid 1800s to the mid 19th century they had just had another huge rebellion that they had taken um, a very long time to put down that was the Taiping rebellion ironically it was also sort of pseudo-christian um (laughs) so that didn't really look good for the christians at the time the leader of the group uh thought that he was jesus's brother but you know it's a story for another day and the Qing at this point was kind of desperate. They had tried to institute a bunch of reforms based on westernization, the modernization of their own army, and they felt that they were just losing more and more ground to the imperialists, basically. And so it was kind of like an opportunist, opportunistic moment more than anything else. I don't think there was a particular reason for latching on. I think it was just... You know, the dowager in that moment saw an opportunity to perhaps get rid of the foreigners once and for all. And I do think, though, I mean, opportunism is a perfectly good reason as well. Um, and, and like you mentioned, yeah, I was just thinking about the um, Taipei in the back of my mind. Um, so then let's go through, you know, with this new super militia formed, um, <laughs> you know, the again, the analogy I have in the back of my mind is kind of that Western powers form, um, you know, this coalition of the willing kind of um, this uh, (laughs) multilateral. I imagine like um, the feeling that Western powers must have had this moment to unite was kind of like when all the, um, you know, the entire UN basically allied to fight Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War. I imagine Mm -hmm. that everyone has this feeling of like righteous indignation, but so what happens now um, with the supercharged boxers versus um, the leagues of foreign forces? Right. So that's quite a good characterization. I mean, similarly to the boxers, ironically, the 
foreign legations all come together because they are united not by ideology but by a common cause um so essentially in mid 1900 um the uh, boxer group boxer militia make their way up to beijing and then on their way they're sort of uh, killing people and they kind of switch from killing Christian converts to killing people who are foreign and also people who own foreign objects. So just sort of being associated sort of tangentially with Westernism, Western ideas, whatever it was, um, was becoming a problem. And so they arrive in the capital um, and in June of 1900, and uh, they start destroying things like um, things that are, um, are sort of associated with modernism. So things like railway lines, um, telegraph poles. Railways had actually been very controversial in China. Lots of people found them suspicious. Lots of peasants, actually. So that's quite interesting. Um, so that wasn't like uncommon. There was, a, there was um, this tension with modernity that the boxers really sort of brought out. Um, and then a kind of trigger point if you will was uh the german minister i believe the german ambassador was shot dead in the street of beijing in june um so this sort of prompted like a series of responses the qing really had to decide at this point what it was they were going to do so on june 21st the empress dowager declared war against uh all of the foreign powers and then in several provinces the um the provincial leaders the governors uh actually started organizing um the murders in groups of uh, christian missionaries so there was actually sort of an organized sort of targeted attack on christian missionaries at this point so that was the impetus behind the formation of this 20,000 man foreign legation league of nations Thing. <laughs> yeah and i i mean that's <laughs> it, it it like every time i read about it, every time i i listen to a podcast about it it's is such a crazy series of events because you imagine that a hundred years ago information moving a bit slower and people moving slower these events you know without getting into specific dates and day by day they're going really quickly to have mm-hmm. you know basically um this uh, kind of people's uprising mixed with um, various, I guess, cult groups, like you said, mixed with, um, you know, soldiers and government um, stamp of approval going in um, to the capital um, and being at the walls, I think, in some cases of the the foreign legations um, is yeah. really a it, it's a radical scene. It's a, um, you know, jaw dropping scene if you've experienced it today or 100 years ago. Um, so then can you take us through how this, <laughs> this broad coalition coalesces, but also like how, how the fight continues between foreign soldiers, um, and the boxers and how ultimately in a country, um, with many more people than the 20,000 troops, um, that come into around Peking, how are the boxers defeated? Right. So unfortunately, and from my own perspective, at least, it's not much of a story uh, because um, the foreign powers, I guess, by dint of 
having already been set up in different areas around China, but also, you know, colonialism helped. So you had British troops and fleets throughout Southeast Asia and East Asia and things like that, and um, South Asia as well. Um, So you have all of these soldiers coming in, partly from Japan and Russia as well, because Japan also had um, foreign territories in in China, uh, but then also from Britain, United States, France, Italy, um and yeah very quickly they're able to overwhelm the boxers who are mainly in the capital at this point so they the boxers had taken over the capital and the foreign legation army is able to turn that situation around pretty quickly um and then all the the majority of the leadership of the um boxer uh rebellious troops uh, commit suicide in disgrace. So then the group goes back to being this sort of hodgepodge rabble of, um, you know, peasants, essentially. So they lose that sort of core leadership. Um, and also what didn't help was that the empress actually fled the capital <laughs> as well. So she uh, just sort of buggered off to Shanxi province I believe uh, she went to Xi'an to the summer palace there um and yeah she um she sort of left all responsibility behind and so the um the foreign forces were then able to kind of take control of the capital and there was some there was some looting um there was some sort of uh they had to kind of end up dividing different areas of both Beijing and Hebei province in general into zones that were sort of run by different legations because they found that like you know the Italians would start fighting with the Americans or whatever way around it was um so there were some sort of pseudo governorships that were set set up um and then they just essentially chased the boxes out of um northern China and um ordered that the uh leaders any leaders who hadn't already committed suicide be rounded up and killed wow yeah and i mean that's as you're mentioning that it kind of it crystallized to me that it seems like the strengths or some of the strengths of the boxers in this kind of uh i don't say natural but um like grassroots-esque or um you know a, a hodgepodge of different people coming together um, under, under, under a united banner um, became a kind of weakness that um, yes. their novelty, in a sense, their, um, you know, collective purpose became a kind of weakness when they lacked um, much central leadership or training, as I'm sure many of these soldiers had. Um, so the last thing that I want to really nail down on is why this matters. What were the after effects of um, the Boxer Rebellion? And I know as I ask that, it, it there's so many things you can talk about, especially because there are so many countries involved. Um, from the American perspective, it was quite a controversial um, event for the Americans who didn't have much of a um, an interest, I guess, compared to, let's say, the British Empire mm-hmm. for uh, the Box Rebellion sent troops. And, you know, that was kind of a dawn or the beginning of a dawn of a American international force. But when you think about the Boxer Rebellion, what are some of the biggest um, effects or, or takeaways from this uh, movement? Yeah, so I think when 
I'm sort of looking at it, I always tend to look at it from um, the perspective of, okay, what happens next in Chinese history? Um, and of course, spoiler alert, the Qing dynasty eventually collapses in 1911. So this is obviously, um, you know, a fermenting event. This is obviously a very important sort of leading leading up to the Xinhai Rebellion. Um, one of those things that really shows the weakness of the Qing dynasty, because one of the stated purposes of the Boxer Rebellion was actually to um, in, uh, re- reinstate the glory of the dynasty. Everyone knew that um, the star was waning. People didn't know that it was going to collapse, but it was certainly in its sort of, you know, declining phase. No one knew when it was going to collapse. Um, so this was kind of like an abortive attempt, at least from the Qing dynasty's perspective, at, okay, maybe we can regain some ground here, especially with the foreigners. Um, from the foreign perspective, obviously this is an opportunity for them to dig their heels in even more and get even more out of the Qing. I mean, some of the um, the indemnities from the Boxer Protocol, for example, were a reparation of... 67 uh i think 67 million pounds which is in today's money like five billion dollars or something like that which was about twice the gdp of china at the time um so it was just kind of like a slap in the face um along with the along with allowing uh foreign troops to be permanently stationed in china which hadn't been allowed before and to create a permanent foreign ministry so prior to this event, there hadn't been a, uh, a sort of regular foreign ministry. There had been something called the Zongli Yamen, which was just like an informal thing run by like a very unimportant prince of the dynasty. But this really sort of formalized, OK, China can no longer put up this sort of barrier, this sort of facade to the Western world that we are isolated. We are, you know, the glorious imperial Qing dynasty you know, it's time for China to really confront what modernity is and, you know, the track that the rest of the world is on. And the thing that I'm curious about that, too, is looking outward. Um, you know, I think this is a big turning point and a big um, kind of point of understanding, maybe, um, where a whole bunch of ideas and trends kind of um, crystallize together, you know, how does this change views? Does it change views um, of people looking f- at China from the outside? Um, I imagine that this kind of feeds into a notion of a mysterious, dangerous Orient. Is that the case? Do you see, um, you know, a cultural change of how outside powers, people outside of China, look in at it? Um. I, th- I don't think so, mainly because um, views about China had been changing sort of slowly and steadily since about the Opium Wars. I mean, you have, for example, in the mid-19th century, you already have the handover of um, parts of Hong Kong to um, Britain. And then in 1899, you have the further cessation of Kowloon as well so that expands um britain's territory territorial hold over the canton area um and so i think this is just sort of like a further 
sort of like a furthering of that idea of like, well, you know, China's there now. China's not this big, scary power. And like China is someone to be influenced, perhaps to be negotiated with, um, but they're certainly not um, modern. And I think it's around this period. It might be a little bit later. It could be a bit earlier as well. I don't have an exact date for it, but this is where you get the um, the beginning of that uh, sick man of Asia trope. So China is the sick man of Asia, particularly in the news press, both in foreign news press and in Chinese news press. Um, and I don't know if you saw more recently in Chinese news, somebody had kind of used that phrase sort of, you know, flippantly, as we do in the West, to describe the coronavirus situation. Um, and they were very quickly expelled <laughs> from China. They had their visa revoked and they were kicked out of the country and never allowed to return. So that's a very sore point in Chinese mm -hmm. history. And um, anything to do with sort of foreign imperial um, imposition in China is a very sore point. Um, because from the Chinese perspective, this is... Um, this is a humiliation and this is the sort of beginning of all of the troubles and it's basically all the West's fault. Well said. That's a good point to end on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to end things here because as we very, um, you know, what's the word? <laughs> yeah. As we uh, slyly alluded to, um, we're going to be picking this conversation back up to talk about a different kind of um, political movement. We're going to be talking about the Jinhai or the 1911 revolution. So if you enjoyed this conversation, tune back in. But again, thank you so much. I'm here with Eddie of Sinobabble Podcast. If you enjoyed what you listened to, you can also subscribe to Sinobabble. You can keep subscribing to Turn of the Century. Leave us both a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. Thank you and get it. Thank you again, Eddie. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.